Welcome everyone to The Mashroom Show, the place to come for landlords who need help and advice with insurance, tenant finding, mortgages, rent collection, and a whole lot more. This is a pre-recorded show, but we'll be going live at the end with our panel to take your questions. So drop them in and we'll get to them in a little while. I'm Rob Smith, and today I'm delighted to welcome back Chartered Accountant and Chartered Tax Advisor, Richard Cunningham. Now he's going to be talking to us about incorporation and how that could potentially benefit your property portfolio. Uh, it can be a very tricky thing to do. Uh, if you have an existing portfolio of properties, it can be difficult to incorporate without causing you some tax issues. Mortgages can also cause problems. So how do you find out if this is in fact the right thing to do? We've got all the answers to all those questions coming up. But before we speak to Richard about all of that, don't forget you can follow Mashroom in any number of different ways on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. You can join our private Facebook community where you can share your experiences and ask questions and get the support and answers that you need. We'll also be sending out a recording of this webinar as well as a review request and we'd really appreciate it if you uh, took the time to leave us a review. Now, if our conversation sparks an idea or a question that you want to share, you can do that via the Facebook community page. Our expert team will be responding until four o'clock. Loads to get stuck into, so without any further ado, let's get started. Okay then, well, so today's guest is Richard Cunningham, who uh, you may remember joined us back in December for a great tax series covering allowable expenses, holding structures, and tax planning opportunities. So if any of those pique your interest, then you can find them all on our website and on our YouTube channel. But today he's joining us for something a little bit different, and we're primarily looking at incorporation. Um, so Richard, great to have you back. Nice Thank to be back. For, for Thank joining you. us once again. So incorporation, we're talking essentially about um, why it might be a good idea or not to actually make your landlording business a literal business, incorporate yes. it as a, as a limited company. So let's start off right from the beginning. What does corporation actually mean? So let's start with limited company. Uh, limited company is a separate legal entity. Um, limited liability, uh, the shareholder's liability is limited to the share capital that they actually put into the company. Um, it requires a director to, to run and to operate it, and um, uh, it, it's that protection that, that um, uh, provides a, uh, comfort for right, a lot okay. of people. So, so there are benefits then. Yeah. The idea of having a limited company, there's some big upsides to that. If you, if you set something up from the office of a limited company, yeah. so let's just briefly run through that, what the benefits of, of having your property in a limited company could be. Sure. Um, so potentially the first one is your t lower tax rates. So mm -hmm. corporate rates are lower than personal income tax rates. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, um, you're looking at 19% for your corporate rates. They are actually going up to 25%, but the, um, the first 50 grand will be 19%. Uh, Thereafter, there's a kind of marginal relief up to 250,000, after which you're into 25%. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the big advantages is that you're only subject to income tax to the extent that profits are actually drawn from the business. Um, and this creates an advantage, particularly where you're highly geared. So you've got um, a big mortgage, uh, large capital repayments. So if you take an example, let's say you are, uh, you're carrying on your uh, rental business as an individual, you make £10,000 worth of uh, taxable profits, you're going to be subject 
to £10,000 at your marginal rate of tax. Now, you might be a higher rate taxpayer, 40%, so that's £4,000. But half of that £10,000 profit might actually be used to repay some of the capital on your mortgage. However, with a limited company, you've got a similar situation, but you are taxed at corporate rates, and you're only taxed on income tax rates to the extent that you're actually able to draw those profits out. So if there's only actually, you've used £5,000 to repay capital, you've only actually got £5,000 in your pocket. So with a limited company, you're just paying income tax on that £5,000 if you take it out. Right, okay, so that's a massive potential saving. Yes, yes. And actually, if you're not going to take it out at all, if you're actually going to reinvest it into more properties, then you're only ever going to be subject to, to, to corporate tax rates. So there's you know, a number of tax advantages. Right, okay. So that, that all sounds brilliant. So why doesn't everybody just do that? Well, before we go on to that, let's, let's just talk about some of the cons mm -hmm. of, yeah. of, um, of incorporating. And I suppose it's you know, where you have an existing portfolio, mm -hmm. um, you might want to transfer that into a limited company. Um, there are potential um, adverse tax consequences of doing so. Right. So um, the transfer of your properties into the company is a, a taxable event for capital gains tax. Um, so for example, let's say you've got a million quid's worth of property, you transfer them in, mm -hmm. they cost you half a million quid, you've got a capital gain of, of half a million pounds at that point of transfer. Um, obviously you've not received any money for that transfer and you're going to have to pay potentially 28% on that half a million pounds, and you're going to have to pay it within 28 days of the transfer. Right. Okay. Uh, so I just want to be really clear about this. So let's say for the, you, you're, um, uh, you bought a buy-to-let property, yeah. and you're thinking, I'm under pressure financially from all different quarters here. Is it the best route for me to actually incorporate this and take advantage of those tax breaks? But the big stumbling block is that effectively you have to sell it to your own business, yes, and that sale triggers the capital yeah. gains, moment. and it also triggers, well, potentially triggers stamp duty as well. So you're going to pay stamp duty on the value. You're also paying, you're going to pay the additional three percent mm -hmm. uh, stamp duty charge as well. So it's potentially a very expensive uh, manoeuvre. Right. Okay. So is there a way around that? Is there a yes? So there are some reliefs, some tax reliefs that you can take advantage of when incorporating. Uh, for both capital gains tax and on the stamp duty side. So for capital gains tax, there's something, something called incorporation relief. But what incorporation relief uh, enables you to do is to effectively defer the gain uh, that, that would normally arise into the value of the shares that are being issued to you. So you're holding over that gain to a future event effectively, mm -hmm. which would normally be a sale of those shares. Um, the challenges you have, there are a number of hoops that you have to jump through to, to benefit from incorporation relief. And essentially, you've got to be uh, carrying on at what the, what's termed a business. Um, and uh, the, the, the revenue can, are quite kind of tight in terms of um, ensuring you meet those requirements. And, and really, you've got to be uh, an active landlord, I think, really doing probably more than spending more than 20 hours a week on, your, on managing your portfolio. Right. So if you're a landlord with three or four properties and you've got an agent managing them for you and it's very much passive income, you're unlikely to benefit from incorporation relief. And the, the, the revenue will actually look at that, will they? They'll, they'll take yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and um, you know, there, there's, uh, there are various bits of case law around this where they have taken um, a case um, where they didn't believe it was, uh, the, 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 the owner was carrying on a business. So um, it's not uncommon. And then on the stamp duty side, again, 
there, there, are, there are reliefs. So if you are holding your portfolio um, in a partnership um, and you transfer into a limited company and essentially the, the, well in simple terms, the ownership of the structure of the partnership mirrors the ownership structure of the limited company, then there is a relief from stamp duty. It has to be a true partnership. Um, so you know, a registered partnership with HMRC. Mm -hmm. um, and most people don't carry on their letting businesses as a partnership. So, you know, th those are the opportunities to, to, to kind of get around the taxes, but it's actually very, well, I say very, it, it, it's fairly unusual for a landlord to be able to benefit from those reliefs. Okay, so let's take a scenario then where you're somebody who does have a couple of properties and you're looking to expand your property portfolio. Yep. Can you set up the new ones that you buy as a business as opposed to the ones you've already got that are going to be expensive to transfer into a business? Yeah, so there's nothing, if, nothing to stop you if you've got an existing portfolio or if you're coming into being a new landlord. Excuse me. Um, there's nothing to stop you um, from scratch setting up a new limited company and, buy, and buying your properties through that limited company. Um, the, uh, and limited companies, as I said, we talked about the pros before. Um, th th there are uh, other pros as well when you're setting it up from scratch uh, it, from an income tax purpose, for income tax purposes and for inheritance tax purposes. So if we start with income tax, mm -hmm. um, often when uh, people set up a limited company, it's often a uh, husband and wife or partners, uh, and they'll just issue two shares, two normal shares, you have a share, your partner has a share. Mm -hmm. um, and income is distributed equally. Um, but it's often not the case that both partners pay the same rates of income tax. So your partner might be a higher rate taxpayer, you might be a basic rate taxpayer. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, actually you want your, if you're the basic rate taxpayer, you really want, uh, you, you want to be taking more of the income because you're gonna pay basic rate. If you're splitting it equally, you're, you're paying basic rates, great, but your partner's paying higher rate. So what, the great thing about shares in limited companies is you can, within what's called the Articles of Association, you can vary the rights of those shares. So for example, you know, to, with the example that we're talking about here, what you could do is you could say, right, okay, I'm gonna issue an A share to my partner and I'm gonna have a B share, and I'm gonna pay dividends just on the B shares, and I'm not gonna pay any uh, dividends to my partner's A shares. And then in that instance, any of the income that you're taking out is just taxed on you at the basic rate until that point you hit higher rate. So, you know, clear, clear income tax advantage there. Mm -hmm. You can start to take things a, a step further. So, um, kids, um, both minor and, and uh, older, can be expensive to uh, maintain. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they usually don't have their own income, mm -hmm. but they do have a personal allowance. So um, there are ways and means of getting income uh, or getting shares to kids mm -hmm. um, and, and declaring income on those uh, shares to, to use up your kids' personal allowances to pay for kids' uh, expenses. And at what age does that, is there a point where you, 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 can, you, you have to stop treating them as children? Yes, so, and really it's important to look at their age when you're putting together their planning. If they're over 18, there's nothing to stop you just giving them shares mm -hmm. and declaring dividends on them and them having the income. You've got to be careful where they're under 18. Um, it, technically, if you're, in those instances, you're giving your kids income um, 
any income over £100 will be taxable on the parent. Right, so, okay. But, uh, and, but you can start to take things a step further and actually if you start, when, when you're setting things up in the first instance, if you can start to bring in grandparents, so grandparents come in, subscribe for shares, mm-hmm. perhaps settle those shares on trust for the benefit of their grandkids, you can see that you can start to uh, get income to the kids. You can also see that it starts getting complicated it does. very quickly, it doesn't does it? Get it's not the kind of thing that you can really do as an amateur. No, 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 definitely, definitely not. It's, uh, it's one that requires advice. You're going to need a tax advisor and you're going to need a lawyer as part of the setup as well. Mm-hmm. That's on the income tax side. Um, you can then start looking at the inheritance tax side. Um, you know, we've talked, we've talked in previous... Um, uh, webinars about uh, you know gifting properties as part of inheritance tax uh, planning, but some of the challenges um, involved there again mm-hmm. triggering tax charges. Um, you've got a similar situation with shares. If you start you know you set up your limited company and you gift shares to to your next of kin, you potentially have the same issue around triggering tax charges. But there are various little tricks that you can um, use to. Um, help reduce future inheritance tax exposure. So let's take an example. Uh, you set up a company, you buy, a mil- there's a million pounds of pro- uh, property in there, but there's 500,000 pounds of debt against it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you get hit by a bus tomorrow, you've got ha- uh, uh, that company is going to be valued at half a million pounds for mm-hmm. your, the purposes of your estate. Um, what you can do is you could say, you could issue some shares to your next of kin, to your kids, grandkids, or whoever it may be, and give them the right to future growth. So at the point at which you give them shares, they've got no value, okay? But what you're saying is you're you're freezing the value of your interest in the company at that point. You're saying, I've got a million pounds of property, I've got half a million pounds of the debt, half a million quid. Anything over that value you attribute to those growth shares that you've given to your kids, to your grandkids, to whoever it may be. Mm -hmm. So let's say in 10 years time, um, you you, uh, sadly pass away, you've got two million quids worth of property in there, and you've got half a million quids worth of debt. So in theory, the value of your state is 1.5 million pounds, but it isn't. It's actually the original 500,000 pounds at the point at which you issued growth shares and effectively froze the value of your interest. Right, okay. That, so that's that million really pound. helpful, but that's a long-term planning yes, strategy. Yes, yes, yes. And, and I think when you're talking about inheritance tax, it's always about the longer term, as, as we'll talk about in a, in a future webinar. Yeah, absolutely. That's going to be fascinating to, to hear about all of that. And um, I mean, just a, a brief word, if we can, about sort of what being a director means. Yes. Because I think a lot of people find the idea of becoming a director. It sounds, I'm an executive, you know, somehow. I don't know. What does it actually mean? So what does being a director actually mean? Um, so you, you, uh, you have responsibilities in law. Effectively, companies are governed by what's the Companies Act 2006. Um, you, um, you, know, you're, you have to behave in, in a certain way when managing your, your company, your business. Uh, you have to have regard to... Um, its articles of association, the way it's formed, the way that it, the, the article set out that the business has to be run. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got to act in the um, in, in the best interest of the company. If you have other shareholders, you've got to be very careful around things like conflicts of interest. Um, if there is a conflict of interest and you have co-directors, you need to disclose those conflicts of interest. Um, so, you know, it's not to be taken lightly. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if, if as a director you, uh, 
you, know, you commit fraud or you uh, trade when insolvent and your business goes under, then you can be held personally uh, liable um, for company debts in some instances. Right, okay. So you need to, you know, if you're going to go down this route, you need to educate yourself. And as a, as a final thought process, because it, clearly there are pros and cons, but yeah. let's say it works out on balance that, that you do want to go down that route. Is it expensive to set up a company? No, not at all. I mean, in the UK, it's, it's, it's frighteningly easy to set one up. You can go on, online today and have one set up this afternoon for about 15, 20 pounds. Right, okay. Um, so it's incredibly easy, but, but actually the ongoing management of it is not quite so easy. Mm -hmm. So you know, if you're running your portfolio as an individual, you prepare your self-assessment tax return. A lot of people do it themselves. With a company, it's very different. Um, you've still got to do your self-assessment, but you've got to prepare full statutory accounts. You've got to file corporation tax returns. You've got to file an annual confirmation statement at a company's house. You know, th there are a lot more responsibilities, and if, uh, if you kind of fail in your responsibilities, it gets expensive. So the fines are up to 1,500 quid if you don't um, file your uh, annual accounts on time if you're mm -hmm. very late. So, and it, so it gets, as, a, as a director of your company, it's your responsibility to decide whether or not you do all that yourself yeah. or whether you have an accountant yeah. to, to do that. And really, uh, with a limited company, you need to have an accountant. You really do. You know, the rules are changing all the time. Uh, you know, corporation tax, as we said, the, the rates are changing. You know, with each budget, there's invariably a change to, to the rules. Mm -hmm. So you, you need to be engaging someone who's got his finger on the pulse. Right, okay. And so as a final general thought then, if, you, if you're a landlord and you're watching this and you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not, not quite sure whether it's the right route to go down, what do you recommend? What should people do to actually work out whether they fall on the pro, this is a good idea, con, this is going to cost you? Take advice. It's very simple. Take advice. Everyone's situation is different. Um, there's no kind of one-size-fits-all. Um, a good advisor will be able to I, tell you whether it's worthwhile and also identify the opportunities, you know, some of the opportunities that we've been talking about today. Great. Richard, always great to have a conversation with you. Thanks ever so much. And we're talking about inheritance tax. We are indeed, time. yes. Looking forward to it. Well, now I'm pleased to say that we have once again uh, got Property Tribe's Vanessa Warwick back in the studio with us. Uh, thanks ever so much for, for coming in, Vanessa. And uh, we're talking once again about uh, some of the questions raised through our Landlord Community Facebook page. Mm, and I want think, to start yeah, off today. I think today. we've got over 5,000 members now. I know, it's great, isn't yeah. it? It keeps growing and growing and growing. Um, tenant damage. And it's always a really tricky one, isn't it? And it's going to affect virtually every landlord because you're always going to get wear and tear on a property. But at what point does wear and tear tip over into damage? Mm. Well, it's a tricky one um, because it's really somebody's judgment and it really comes out, you know, if a tenant uh, raises a deposit dispute with the landlord, um, if the landlord is claiming that something is, is damage and not fair wear and tear, then it's really down to the independent adjudicator at the um, dispute resolution for the deposit scheme. So. It's, it's very difficult to say. I think the, the key thing which we always stress is to have a very clear inventory at the start of the tenancy with photographs, preferably even video as well. That really sets a marker in the sand as to the standard of the property when the tenant uh, took possession of it. Um, when they leave, then you should have an outgoing um, inventory done as well. 
and that will show uh, if there has been any damage um, and you know it makes it a lot easier for the adjudicator to determine whether it is just wear, fair wear and tear or if it is actually quite significant okay. damage. And photographic and or video evidence is a really useful thing to gather for all of that then? I think it's absolutely vital now. Um, and you know when you when there is a, a deposit dispute, the adjudicator will want to see all the evidence that you have. Um, and if you don't have a check-in inventory with photographs, then you're already on a weak footing. Okay, so if you notice that there, or if you suspect that there's you know problems with the property, um, how should you initially then broach that with the tenant? Because obviously, you, if if they're a good tenant, if they're still paying their rent. You want to keep that income coming in, don't mm -hmm. you? You don't want to create a situation that you don't need to. Well, as you know, I'm a big fan of mid-term property inspections, and I would recommend having your first inspection done within three months of the tenant moving in, just to see how they're settling in. And then thereafter, probably maybe twice a year max, just to keep checking in um, to see how the tenant is living in the property. So um, I think if you have a mid-term property inspection and you see something that is clear damage, um, then again, it boils down to good relations between landlord and tenant. Hopefully, you know, you're maintaining them. Um, and just an open and honest conversation uh, with the tenant saying, you know, unfortunately, this looks like there is damage here. Um, and, you know, how was it caused? Uh, and, you know, we are going to have to uh, replace that. Um, and, you know, it will come out of your deposit. And presumably, it's an instant red flag if a tenant says, no, no, you're not coming in, I'm not going to let you see your property. It can be, um, but there are many legitimate reasons why a tenant wouldn't allow access. Um, some that spring to mind are maybe they're a shift worker and they have to sleep during the day. Uh, maybe they've got a new baby and they don't want to be disturbed. Um, maybe they've had some kind of bereavement or personal crisis. So there, there's many legitimate reasons why a tenant wouldn't want to allow access. Um, the thing for the landlord to do if the tenant continually refuses access is to, is to make sure they've got it documented via a paper trail, whether that be via email, letter, text or whatever. Um, very, very important to have that, but particularly if the, the tenant is refusing access for compliance issues like a gas safety check or something of that nature. Mm. Um, and, you know, if, if they keep refusing, um, then, well, you probably would start to get suspicious. Um, it could be something like they're subletting or um, there could be a cannabis farm there. I mean, you just don't know. Or they might have a pony in the kitchen. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you, you need to try and work out if it's a legitimate reason or a non-legitimate reason why they're refusing uh. access. Um, and yes, take it from there, really. I mean, right. clearly, if you go to a property during the day and all the curtains are shut, um, then that, that's a, a bad sign that there could be a cannabis farm going on in there. So, right, okay. you know, there are little things you can check just to see. Um, and 
yeah, just keep an eye on the property. Lovely. And so I mentioned the pony there because you mentioned it last time we were on the, the programme that somebody amazingly had moved a pony into their property uh, because there was a stable door yes. in the kitchen. Yes. Which they took as an invitation. To... Now, pets is a really interesting area because this is what we want to come on to next. And I would say that having a pony in the house is probably beyond the pale for most people <laughs> most of the time. But huge numbers of people do want to have a cat. Yes, they do want to quite have right too. Because you're an animal lover. I am. So, where do you stand then on tenants with pets? Well, broadly speaking, I'm in favour of it. Um, I'm a, a cat lover, an animal lover myself, as you mentioned. I think pets greatly enhance our lives. Um, they certainly made a big difference to me and, you know, having my cats during lockdown and so on. Um, they've been proven to help with people's mental health, so I'm all for them. But that, I say that broadly speaking because there, there will be instances when a pet isn't appropriate. Uh, an example of that might be if it's a leasehold flat where the lease um, prohibits keeping a pet. Um, it might be that if the uh, tenant is out all day at work um, and they want a dog, you, you might have to think twice about that because dogs can often bark all day if they're left on their own. They can cause a, a no noise nuisance. Mm -hmm. um, so it really does depend on the circumstances of, of the tenant and the property as to whether it's appropriate and suited to, to have a pet there. Um, but, you know, if you've got a four-bed detached house with a garden and the tenant wants a small dog, then, then why not? So... On our community landlord page, uh, we had a particular issue with a, a tenant um, who had, uh, when they moved in and they signed their AST, um, they didn't have a pet, and then halfway through the tenancy, they got a cat. Yeah. Now, as a landlord, what do you do there? Because maybe they shouldn't have had it in the first place, but it's now there and in the property. Do you need to actually go back to that tenancy agreement and rewrite it? What should you be doing? Well, if the um, tenancy agreement prohibited a pet staying at the property, then obviously it is a breach of the agreement. Um, but, you know, most landlords would take a view on it. Um, me personally, if the tenant got in touch with me and, or it was found through a mid-term property inspection that there was a pet there, I, I would take a view on it. Um, I would have a look to uh, or get the... the uh, uh, inventory clerk who was inspecting the property to have a look and see if the, tet the, the pet had done any damage to the property. Mm -hmm. um, but if if it was living in the property well, then then I would I would just probably accept it, um, provided of the other uh, caveats. That I we mean, does, it, does this, in general terms, come down to to damage on the property? That you, as a landlord, what kind of wear and tear you're prepared to have in the property? I think so, because if you've got four large dogs in a one-bedroom or two-bedroom house, that's going to have a big impact uh, potentially on the property. Um, I do know of one instance uh, where a dog completely chewed off every single skirting board in the property, um, and that was quite expensive to, to put those all right. So pe pets, unfortunately, do have the potential to, to do damage, um, but it's very much you know, making sure that the tenant is a responsible pet owner as well. Mm -hmm. um, and if you have a look at the Cats Protection website, they have a lot of useful guides. They have something called the Perfect P-U-R-R. See what they did there? Yeah, uh, <laughs> Perfect Landlords Campaign, uh -huh. um, which gives you information for both tenant and landlord how to have a cat successfully in a property. And if you have a look at the Dogs Trust 
website, they also have a guide for landlord and tenant um, for having a, a dog in the property as well. So I think if you work with the tenant um, and you know take advantage of these free guides, mm -hmm. Um, you can have a, a, a pet happily in the property if it is appropriate for a pet to be there. Great, Vanessa, thank you. Now, just before we let you go, I just want to have a sort of a, a slightly more broad conversation with you around the fact that obviously we know that Section 21 is going to be changing at some point in the future. Um, there's lots of pressures on people because of interest rate rises and the, the cost of living crisis and so forth. Lots of people are leaving the landlording sector. Mm -hmm. how, how do you feel about all of that in general? at the moment yourself? Well, um, yeah, I, I, I did an interview with the Mail Online this morning actually and I said I've been a landlord since 1992 and I think it is the most challenging conditions that I've ever experienced uh, as a landlord with everything kind of coming together almost like a perfect storm. Mm -hmm. And it's actually very gratifying to see that so many um, politicians are now speaking out against uh, Section 24 um, and you know the, the abolishment of Section 21 and so on and even today it was reported in the news that there's a, a Labour MP forgive me I can't remember his name but he has actually spoken out against Section 24 as well which is virtually unheard of because Labour have even more draconian policies than the Conservatives do um, but me personally um, you know it's, I've had a, a few challenges to face. Um, I've done, I had, I've got four properties on um, standard variable rates, um, historic mortgage express uh, products, which you know have been ticking on a, along at a very low rate. I've managed to remortgage um, two of those. Uh, one of them, uh, I had to input uh, twelve thousand pounds to redeem the mortgage. And this is interesting because this is a high value property that I've not taken any equity from uh, since I bought it in 2006. Um, so I think I'd had about uh, 150,000 of, of capital growth um, since then, maybe a bit more. But because of the new stress test and, and so on, I could only actually get a mortgage for £12,000 less than my mortgage in 2006. And I think it's good to highlight this because I think it shows how challenging it is, not only for newbies coming to our sector and trying to get you know, deals to stack up, but also typically um, landlords have expanded their portfolios by releasing equity and using that as deposit on the next one. Mm -hmm. So it's getting harder and harder to get finance and you know, existing landlords are gonna to struggle to grow as well. So given all that, what would you say to a newbie? You know, people who maybe 10 or 15 years ago, you go, buy to let, brilliant, we can make loads of money on this, this is great. The landscape has fundamentally shifted. Mm. Would you recommend to anybody to get into landlording now? I would, because I, be I still believe in property as an investment. I think for the man on the street uh, that may not understand more complex type of investing like stocks and shares, I mean, that's like gobbledygook to me. Um, you know, it, we've, most people have bought their own home. They have an understanding of the house buying process. And I think to, for somebody that's looking to create wealth, um, it, it, is, it will always be a, a good way to go. I mean, it's bricks and mortar. It's a tangible, solid investment. Uh, you know, we have you know, too high demand, not enough supply, so rents are extremely robust at the moment. I've had one rent go from about 1100 per month to 1700 per month on a house in Basingstoke. So it just shows how much rents are rising. 
Um, and you know, I think if you buy right, get the right advice from the right sources, like Mushroom um, and Property Tribes and the NRLA and uh, you know those kind of independent sites. Um, and you make sure that the deal stacks up, you do your due diligence, you get the right tax advice, the right finance advice, I still think you can make it work. I think uh, newbies will probably have to put in much bigger deposits, which is, is no bad thing. You'll be less leveraged, um, more resistant to market changes going forward. So yes, I will always 100% um, you know, support buy to let and it's, it served me very well. It is a long-term investment though. So anybody coming into it, Bye, you know, they've got to be prepared to be in it for 20, 25 years. Great. Vanessa, as always, brilliant to have a chat. Thanks ever so much for coming in. Vanessa Warwick from Property Tribes. Time now for the latest news. And while the tendency with all news is to focus on the negative, we think that this week's news has a bit of a positive spin for landlords. Firstly, with something a bit counterintuitive. House prices are falling. Nationwide has reported that March saw a 3.1% fall in house prices compared to March 22. And not only are we seeing a year-on-year -year fall, but also a monthly fall with a drop of 0.8% over the previous month. And it's the seventh month in a row that we've seen a fall, meaning that prices are now 4.6% below their August 2022 peak. Nationwide's chief economist, Robert Gardner, said that since the mini-budget last year, activity has remained subdued. The number of mortgages approved for house purchases remained weak at 43,500 cases in February. That's almost 40% below the level prevailing a year ago. So why is this in any way good news for landlords? After all, people invest in property because it's a reliable investment. It's likely to grow in value and leave you with a profit over time. That is, of course, all true. A drop in house prices in the short term, therefore, doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be out of pocket when you eventually come to sell. Landlords know that houses are a long-term investment. So if you're considering leaving the sector, depending on when you purchase your property, it's very likely that you will still see a profit. But the really good news here is that it's a great opportunity to think about investing in your portfolio. With house prices a little lower than usual, it's well worth giving your mortgage advisor a call and exploring what options you have regarding investing in more property. More time to hit your EPC targets. We've been talking about the change in energy performance certificate minimum ratings for a while now. We even hosted a webinar last year with expert James Tanner, who broke down all the ways in which you can improve the energy efficiency of your property so you could get your property to the new minimum of C by the proposed deadline of 2025. Well, that deadline now appears to be shifting. The original proposal from the Department for Energy Security and Net Zero suggested 2025 for newly let rentals to hit that C rating and 2028 for all other rented properties. Well, now the Daily Telegraph is reporting that all rental properties will have to reach that minimum standard by 2028. If true, that's excellent news for landlords who, in a time of ever-increasing risk due to interest rate rises and the cost of living crisis, have been concerned about being able to make those updates, which can in some cases cost as much as £15,000. 
The deadline extension means landlords will now have more time to plan and spread the cost as much as possible. Every silver lining does have a cloud, though. It's also reporting that ministers are considering fines of up to £30,000 for landlords who fail to make those upgrades to a C rating by 2028. So don't put off making those changes for too long. Well, now on The Mushroom Show, we're joined by Emmy Stedman, who's uh, one of Mushroom's brilliant landlord product specialists, specialising in lettings. And um, Emmy, I mean, we've, we've been uh, looking at some of the, uh, the sort of money-saving things that we can think about as you're, you're setting your portfolio up. Um, and, and there are other ways to, to save money as well. So what are some of the factors that you're actually finding that are really affecting landlords at the moment financially? So rents are rising, which is obviously a good thing because it means more money. Um, however, the thing that you need to be thinking about with that is I'm putting up the rent, but can my tenants afford to pay that? Um, also, mortgage rates are increasing. So being a landlord now is looking more like a high risk, high reward kind of business. Mm -hmm. um, I think with the cost of living crisis as well, we are seeing a lot more default on rent payments, um, more than we ever have before. So I think now is the prime time to get yourself protected and invest in the right insurances. Okay, because it's one of these things, isn't it, that uh, as a landlord, you might want to lower the rent to make it easier for your tenants to pay it. But if you've got increased yeah. expenses, you can't necessarily afford to, to actually do that. So yeah, I think the, the margin with how is, much landlords are, are making. It's now. really being squeezed, isn't yeah. it? So what can you do to protect yourself? Um, again, so you need to invest in the right insurances. I think the questions that need to be landlords need to be asking themselves now is if my tenant defaults on their rent, can I afford to cover that? If my boiler breaks down, can I afford to cover that? If I have a, a burst pipe, can I afford to cover that? And if the answer is no, then you need to look into getting the right insurances. And if the answer is yes, then you don't really want to have to pay that out anyway. So. No. No, indeed. So what's the most cost-effective way of actually doing that then? Um, so we've got our let and protect packages. Um, so we've got our 5% package. So 5% um, of your rental income. And what that includes is guaranteed rent with rent guarantee insurance, your emergencies covered with home emergency insurance, and £25,000 of legal cover as well. So it's quite a substantial coverage there. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, we were talking with Vanessa about potential uh, issue with, with damage to the property, whether that's deliberate or accidental, but it's something that you might have to spend out money on. <laughs> what about that? I would suggest getting a professional inventory done at the start of the tenancy. Um, that way, if there is anything that comes up at the end of the tenancy, it's going to be a smooth process for you if you do need to make any claims. Um, I would also suggest for landlords to look into our deposit replacement option as well. Um, so that's becoming more and more popular, especially now with sort of the, the economic crisis and the cost of living crisis that mm -hmm. we're in. Um, so what that is, is the tenant pays one week's worth of rent rather than the standard five. Um, and the landlord has up to 12 weeks worth of cover. So it's advantageous for the tenant because they don't need to be spending all that money up front. Mm -hmm. But it's also advantageous for the landlord because you've got up to 12 weeks worth of cover, which is more than double that you'd get with a standard um, deposit. Right, okay. And and if people want to take advantage of any of those, what do they do? Come and speak to us at Lettings. Come and have a chat with us. <laughs> Emmy, thanks ever so much. Thank Emmy you. Sedman from Mashroom. Well, that's it for the Mashroom Show for this week. Uh,
Don't forget, though, there's plenty more to come in the future. We've got more from Richard Cunningham over the next few episodes. Join us for more tax-related issues on Friday the 21st of April. Don't forget to follow us online and join our Facebook community. If you want to listen to the show again, then keep an eye on your inbox. The recording will be with you very shortly. But for the moment, goodbye for now, and we'll see you again on the 21st of April.